0: So,
1: uh, before I get into uh, today's lecture, and there's a... Well, okay, so first I'll do some announcements, all right. So, first of all... um...
0: Hey. Okay.
1: So, first of all, a reminder that we have uh, office hours today from 10.30 to 11.30. So that's in the normal place, that's first floor LSB. Uh, I'll set up the online office hours before the midterm, that makes sense also. So we'll do that tomorrow, Wednesday, from 11 to noon. So you wanna put that in your schedule if you can't come to this office hours. And wherever you are, just log into the Moodle. There should be a chat room set up. And you should be able to figure that out. All all this information I'm gonna put on the Moodle after the class, okay? So unfortunately, uh, York has split us up over four rooms for the midterm. So if you are last name A to L, you're here, okay? If your last name is M to O, you're in LSB 103. If your last name is P to R, there's a lot of people with the last name P to R. Uh, Last name P and R, you're in LSB 105. And then if your last name S to Z, you're in LSB 106. Okay, so I'll post this also on the uh, on the Moodle. So before I uh, get into today's lecture, a few people have come up to me uh, pointing out this slide that was covered uh, when one of the guest lecturers was giving the the lecture. This has come up a few times in office hours also, so I thought I would. Uh, I'd cover it uh, specifically this question, which people have felt wasn't very well answered, so I'll cover it now. So this lecture had to do with um, secondary structure. We talked about alpha, you talked about alpha helices and beta sheets, and you talked about beta, these beta turns. So these beta turns are basically very sharp turns in direction of the polypeptide chain. They occur over the course of only four amino acids, right? And so because the backbone of the chain is very significantly bent in a beta turn, you often have a lot of proline. And that's the reason why there's often a lot of proline in beta turns, right? Beta prolines have, we talked a little bit about on the Ramachandran plot, prolines have a kind of a specific space on that plot. they don't really bend into certain shapes, but they're happier bending into other shapes. And uh, we covered also in this lecture how proline is not good in an alpha helix. If you put a proline in an alpha helix, the alpha helix stops because the, the backbone, ang- the angles of psi and phi that need to be accommodated to do an alpha helix, proline is not compatible with those. But with respect to the beta turns, Why is it that glycine is so common in beta turns, and specifically the type 2 beta turns? Well, first we have to ask ourselves, what's the difference between a type 1 and a type 2 beta turn? right? What you want to pay attention to uh, is amino acids 2 and 3. And what I want to draw your attention to uh, is this oxygen okay, on amino acid 2. This is the C double bond O of that oxygen. And it's pointing into the slide. Okay, or into the screen. And then there's this R group here that's pointing toward you, right? It's not into the slide, it's out of the slide. So it's, they're basically pointing opposite, right? That's a type, two, that's a type one beta turn. okay? In a type two beta turn, the R group of amino acid three and this C double bond O are pointing out the same way. They're both pointing out of the screen. Towards you. Okay, so that's the difference between a type 1 and a type 2 beta turn. Now, the reason why glycine is so common in a type 2 beta turn when you have this orientation is that if you have a bulky R group here, right, if this is a great big amino acid R group like tryptophan, well it's too big to accommodate the same side as this oxygen, right? They get in what they get into each other's way you get this steric clash, okay? So you the R group of amino acid three matters a lot with respect to whether it's gonna be accommodated in a type two beta turn because of steric clash with this oxygen, this C double bond O oxygen on amino acid two. And that's why glycine is so common in type two beta turns because uh, glycine has the smallest R group, right? It's just a hydrogen. So there's enough, shape, there's enough space for a glycine to be at position 3 in a beta turn, and especially a type 2 beta turn, compared to other amino acids. Yeah. Yeah, you. You. Yes. Prolines are happy in either beta turn. Yeah, you could say that. So the question is, are glycine and proline on opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of degrees of freedom on the Ramachandran plot? So certainly proline has fewer bond angles available to it than glycine because of the R group of proline, right? Phi, it can't move on proline because it's actually held in place. It's basically, when you look at the R group of, of proline, it comes around and makes a covalent bond to the amino group. Turning that bond would be like trying to turn a circle or a a chain that's linked. You can't turn it. You can only turn it so much before you're going to have to break it. So you can't get free rotation. So proline has fewer available bond angles available to it than most amino acids, and glycine has more because the R group of glycine is so small that it allows... Bond angles that other amino acids don't have available to them. Okay, so we're gonna switch gears now to uh, the current lecture, my favorite lecture: carbohydrates. So. We're gonna talk, a lot of this class is nomenclature and I know you're probably not thinking about it a lot because of uh, the midterm on Thursday. Um, so, you know, do your best to kind of follow along and, uh, and 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 try to kind of get, there's a lot of rules in this lecture. So, in that sense, it's some people like it because as long as you have the rules in mind, then you can do very well. But the rules can be a little bit confusing, so I'll try to get through it. I always see if I can get through this lecture without making a mistake. If I do, it'll be the first time. So So carbohydrates in general conform to the formula CH2O, right? So for example, if you're talking about glucose, that would be C6, H12, O6, right? This n would be 6. Uh, we'll first talk about monosaccharides. so that's CH2o uh, n subscript n, where n is 3 to 7. monosaccharides will have a single aldehyde group or a single ketone group, and we'll talk about that in the next few slides. And then they'll have many hydroxyl groups, alcohol groups, right? And these are typically, in the body, uh, they serve as fuel molecules for immediate consumption. They can be conjugated to other things with other roles, and have other roles. For example, famously, ribose is a part of RNA and DNA, but when you're talking about the naked sugar without anything attached to it, these are typically fuel molecules that we use very quickly. Uh, if we're storing fuel, we don't usually store it as sugar. We store it as fat. And then you've got polysaccharides. These have more than one aldehyde or ketone group. And we can use these as kind of an intermediate storage form of carbohydrates, something between a monosaccharide and a fat. So things like starch or uh, amylopectin, these these uh, Molecules, we'll talk at the, at the end of the lecture. So first, some terms with respect to kind of what we're, we're talking about, right? So sugars with an aldehyde functional group are called aldoses, and sugars with a ketone functional group are called ketoses. So these are the trioses, right? The three carbon sugars. We've got glyceraldehyde. It's an aldotriose. It's got an aldehyde group here, right? So you should understand what an aldehyde group looks like. And this is a uh, ketose, this is the ketotriose, the three carbon uh, ketose, which is dihydroxyacetone. So it's got a ketone group in it, right? So your sugars are either gonna have aldehyde groups or ketone groups, and which group they have is gonna determine, in part, which sugar it is, and it's gonna contribute to the name of the sugar. So you should understand that when you're looking for a sugar, you should be looking for either an aldehyde group or a ketone, a ketose. A ketose group. At least when they're in their linear form, as I've drawn here, or as has been drawn here. Okay. So as I mentioned, here are the uh, three carbon trioses. We have glyceraldehyde and aldotriose and dihydroxyacetone. I already talked about that. There's only two trioses, right? Well, there's... Uh, there's different versions of glyceraldehyde but um, there's the only trioses are are glyceraldehyde and dihydroxyacetone and as you increase the number of carbons in your sugar you get many different flavors so going from three carbons where there's only basically two sugars to four carbons there are many more sugars and five and six and it gets very uh, extensive so I, I alluded on the last slide that there's two different versions of glyceraldehyde. So, so why is that? Well, it's because, you, if you note, know, the carbon two of glyceraldehyde is chiral. Okay. So if you go back to this slide, just simply remember when we're talking about chirality, you're talking about a carbon that has four different functional groups around it. Right, and this goes back to your basic chem. So if we're looking at carbon 2, this one that I'm highlighting here, what's it got around it? It's got a a proton, it's got a hydrogen, it's got a hydroxyl group, it's got an aldehyde group, and it's got the CH2OH. So those are four different things, right? So thus, this carbon is chiral. Is this carbon chiral? No. It makes a double bond to this O, that makes it not chiral. Is this carbon chiral? No. It's got two different bonds that both are the same group, two different Hs, right? That makes this carbon not chiral is, di- is dihydroxyacetone chiral at all no there's no chiral carbons in dihydroxyacetone right it's carbon here that has the ketone group it's a C double bond O right so th- thus this carbon nor this carbon nor this carbon have a chiral center okay? but at least glyceraldehyde has two different versions and so the arrangement around the carbon is going to determine uh, whether it's D-glyceraldehyde or L-glyceraldehyde. And these are mirror, mirror images of one another. Right? Now, one thing we're going to talk about some rules in this course for whether something, a little bit, as to how you assign D or L to a sugar. But one thing I don't care about, and I'm not going to ask you, are those rules for deciding whether something is D or L. Okay? And I think you've covered this in chem. There's basically a scoring system. You basically assign a score to each of the groups around the chiral carbon, and then you count the direction you need to go, whether you need to go this way, clockwise or counterclockwise, to determine whether it's DRL. That I I'm not gonna I I can't keep track of it, so I'm not gonna bother with you on that. Okay? Now having said that, there are there is one element of the DRL question that we are going to talk a little bit about, but that's not it. Okay? For now Bear in mind only that you've got uh, chiral carbons and sugars, and you're going to have D sugars and L sugars, right? This is what I want you to understand with respect to the chirality rules, okay? the D or the L. What you have to so in a in a larger sugar like ribose, okay? For the for the for the shorter sugar like glyceraldehyde there's only one chiral carbon. So it's easy to know which carbon you care about when you're assigning whether a sugar is D or L. But when you get into bigger sugars, right, so this is the five carbon ribose and the five carbon arabinose, there are multiple chiral carbons, okay? There's more than one. This carbon's chiral, this carbon's chiral, and this carbon's chiral, okay? This carbon's chiral, you see it's got an aldehyde group, a hydroxyl, a proton, and then this big thing underneath it. You can do the same thing for this one also. This carbon is chiral, and then this carbon is also chiral. So, when we're assigning whether you have got D-ribose or L-ribose, and D and L refers to the chirality around a carbon, well, which carbon are we talking about, right? That's the one rule I'd like you to understand with respect to D and L. The chiral carbon that's furthest from the carbonyl is the one that's going to determine whether the sugar is named D or L. So the, chir- the chiral, this, remember we talked about how all um, sugars have uh, an aldehyde group or a ketone group. Both ketones and aldehydes have a carbonyl, the C double bond O. You've got to find the chiral carbon that's the furthest from it. Okay, which one's furthest from it? Well, this carbon is furthest from it, but it's not chiral, right? This carbon's got two H's on it, so that makes it not chiral. This carbon is the one that's the furthest, okay? So when you're looking at to which carbon makes a sugared DRL, it's this one,
0: okay?
1: So that's the first thing I want you to understand. Now we're gonna get into a little bit of terms, okay? We've got stereoisomers. Stereoisomers are any two sugars that have the same chemical formula, but because of their chirality, they're different. Okay. Subsets of stereoisomers are, and we'll, I'll show you this on the next slide a little bit, are diastereomers and enantiomers. Okay. Diastereomers are stereoisomers that are not mirror images. Okay, so if you look at ribose, so it's giving you as an example, arabinose is a diastereomer of ribose. So here's arabinose and here's ribose. Okay? They have the same chemical formula, right? They're both five carbon sugars with exactly the same functional groups in them. Right? But they vary in their chiralities, right? So on ribose, all the hydroxyls are on one side. They're all on the right for D-ribose, and they're all on the left for L ribose. Whereas arabinose, two of them are on the right and one's on the left for D-rabinose, and two are on the left and one's on the right for L-rabinose. Okay. That makes ribose and arabose, ribose and arabinose different sugars. They're, we, they're both five carbon sugars, but they've got different names because they're diastereomers of one another. Okay. L and D-ribose are enantiomers of one another. An antiomer means they're mirror images of one another. If you put a mirror down the plane here, D-ribose is the exact kind of mirror opposite of L-ribose. Okay? So when you change D-ribose to L-ribose, you've got to change the hydroxyl around this chiral carbon, right? the one that determines DRL, but you've also got to change the other ones because D-ribose and L-ribose have to be mirror images have to be mirror images of one another. You don't just change this one, these hydroxyls. You change these ones, too. So to summarize what I've said on this slide, I'll go over it again on the next slide. Stereoisomers are sugars that have the same chemical formula but different orientations around their chyl carbon. And subsets of stereoisomers, you have whether or not they're mirror images of one another or not. If they're mirror images of one another, then those stereoisomers are also enantiomers. If they're not mirror images of one another, then those stereoisomers are diastereomers of one another. And when they're diastereomers of one another, you actually change the name of the sugar.
0: Yeah.
1: What if you change this one and not these ones? According to this, <laughs> you would not be just changing that into L-ribose because this is what L-ribose looks like. So this is a summary of what I just said, okay? So this is 3 This is a, a four-carbon sugar, one, two, three, four. Stereoisomers are mirror images of one another. And the boxed asymmetric carbon, the one that's furthest from the aldehyde, determines the DRL designation. So you want to decide whether your sugar is D or L. You find the chiral carbon that's furthest from the carbonyl. In the case of an aldose, that's an aldehyde group. So you've got this aldehyde group. Which chiral carbon is furthest? Well, this one's further than this one. So that's the one that's boxed. This is not chiral, it's got two hydrogens on it. This particular orientation where the hydroxyl groups are in opposing orientations to one another, not on the same side, we call that 3 And if the hydroxyl is pointing this way, that's d 3 If the hydroxyl is pointing this way, that's l 3 Plus bless you. And remember, d 3 and l 3 are mirror images of one another, okay? Diastereomers are stereoisomers that are not mirror images of one another. So for 3 they are on opposite sides. On erythrose, they're on the same side. So because you've changed the orientation, this is now a different sugar, right? You changed the name. And we're gonna get into animers in a few slides. Conformational isomers, as we're gonna talk about uh, in a few slides, when you get um, sugars that are more than five carbon, five carbon sugars, six carbon sugars, I think you guys have probably seen glucose before, and it's usually not written like this. It's written like this, or drawn out like this. That's because 5 and 6 carbon sugars like to cyclize. They like to make rings. They're more stable as rings. And we'll get into that in a second. But what I want to point out to you here on this slide is this idea of conformational isomers. You can also have two sugars that are the same sugar, But when they cyclize and form a ring, they take different conformations. We call this one chair, because you've got this hydroxyl group pointing above the plane of the ring, and this hydroxyl group pointing below the plane of the ring, right? And you call this one boat, in which both sides of the ring are pointing up. Now, chair is gonna be favored over boat, because remember, we talked about a bit of steric clash, right? There are going to be fewer things getting in the way of one another in chair than in boat, but both conform and that's going to be particular in which forms and the abundance of each form is going to be dependent on the sugar Okay, but I just wanted to understand kind of this idea of conformational isomers so here are all the DL aldoses. okay we talked about uh, the three carbon aldoses there's only one glyceraldehyde and we're talking only about the D-aldoses, right? So in theory, there's an L version of all of these. Okay? There's two four-carbon aldoses, right? We talked about how erythrose has two hydroxyls on the same side, and then d threose the hydroxyls go on opposite sides. And as you get bigger and bigger, more and more carbons, you get more and more permutations that you can make. And so you make many, many versions, and no, I don't need you to know which are which, okay? I'm not gonna ask you, what's this? I've never heard of gulose. Presumably it's real, I don't know. But I want you to kind of understand more of the rules for kind of differences between D and L, and it'd be helpful to know that as you increase the number of carbons, you're gonna have more structures available to you to make more and more different sugars and if you recall all the sugars in biological systems are D you don't really find L sugars we can make L sugars in the lab but the way we make sugars in bodies using enzymes are all D okay so this has relevance to what I'm going to talk about in the next few slides with respect to how sugars cyclize okay so Chemically, you can uh, an aldehyde in an aldose can react with an alcohol group to form a, what we call a hemiacetal. Okay? And a ketone and a ketosis, we haven't talked about any ketoses yet. We've only been talking about aldoses. So these are all the, the aldoses, right? They all have aldehyde groups. There's a whole other slide in your text of all the ketoses, right? So you would understand that ketoses would not have an aldehyde group. They would have a ketone group again I don't expect you to memorize them but you should understand the concept so aldehydes will react with an alcohol group somewhere else all right either on themselves or on another sugar to form a hemiacetal okay ketone groups can also react with an alcohol to make a hemiketal okay and then hemiacetals can react with another hydroxyl group to make an acetyl and and that gives off a water molecule and hemiketols can react with another hydroxyl group to form a ketone and they'll also give off a water and i'm going to talk about this a little bit first because this is what happens when a sugar cyclizes forms a cyclic ring and then i'll talk about this a little bit later this is what happens when two sugars come together to make a disaccharide so this is kind of what i've been talking about a little bit this is the way we This is one way you can draw glucose, but actually glucose, when it's floating around in water, almost is never in this conformation. It's not very stable this way. It would much rather cyclize. So what happens is you get this reaction, this aldehyde and alcohol group to form a hemiacetyl group. Here's your aldehyde group. It reacts with an alcohol group on itself, okay, to form this ring, okay? So this is a hemiketal, sorry, a hemiacetyl group. Because glucose is an aldose, so this is a hemiacetal group, and this on, on either side here. And as I mentioned, uh, monosaccharides with five or more carbons spend most of their time in these in these forms. Okay. Now, as you can see here, when it cyclizes, it can go kind of one or two ways. Right. You've got alpha D-glucopyranose and alpha and beta D-glucopyranose. We started with D-glucose, right? And that refers to the orientation around the 5-carbon. That's this carbon here, okay? That's, for D-glucose, that's fixed, right? So when we cyclize, that's not going to change, right? In both alpha-D-glucopyranose and beta-D-glucopyranose, the orientation around this carbon hasn't changed. So you still have to have D-something when you get down here. Pyranose refers to the number of groups in the ring and we'll talk about that in a few slides also if you count how many groups are in the ring one two three four five six this is a six-membered ring thus it's a pyranose a five-membered ring is called the furanose which we'll talk about but what i want to call your attention to here is this going one way or the other here when the hydroxyl group reacts with this carbon group, right? this carbon is now going to become chiral. Right? It's not chiral before it reacted, right? because it's got the C double bond O. But when it reacts with it, it's gonna become chiral. Right? Now it's got a C with a hydrogen, a C with a hydroxyl, and the things that come off this carbon in each direction are different. So it becomes chiral. So you can imagine that when this hydroxyl attacks the C, it can attack it from one or two directions, and that's going to make it one of two chiralities. right? And that's what happens. What happens is when you make this new covalent bond in this hemiacetyl reaction, if after you've made this new covalent bond, the hydroxyl ring is pointing below the, when we draw it, the hydroxyl group points below the plane of the ring, we call that alpha. If the hydroxyl group points above the plane of the ring, we call that beta. So this would be alpha D-glucopyranose it's got an alpha group with the hydroxyl pointing below the plane of the ring it's in the D conformation. we're looking at carbon 5 for that right all in sugars are going to have this orientation around carbon 5 and on this side it's a pyranose it's a six-membered ring okay so that's alpha D glucopyranose and then beta D glucopyranose everything's the same still 6 membered ring still the same orientation around carbon 5 but this different orientation around this I'm going to talk a little bit of, I'm basically going to say some of these things again on this slide. So hopefully it's a little bit clearer. Okay. All right. So we've got this cyclization of the open form of D-glucose and you can make these four different forms. Okay. I talked about the pyranose forms. Right. The pyranose forms are the five, are the six-membered rings. Right. Because they look like a pyran ring. That's why they're called pyranoses. You can also make a six-membered, uh, sorry. All this you can also make a five-membered ring. A five-membered ring looks like this, a furine ring, so we call those furinoses. Okay? So um, so glucose can either I'm gonna come back to that slide in a second. Glucose can actually form both the pyranose form and the furanose form. Okay, here's the linear form of glucose. It can make a six membered ring or a five membered ring. Sorry either a six-membered ring in the alpha or the beta configuration, or a five-membered ring in the alpha or the beta configuration. But there's much, much more of the six-membered ring configuration than the five-membered ring configuration because it's a lot easier. There's a lot less steric strain on making a six-membered ring than a five-membered ring. So glucopyranoses look like this, and I showed you that on the last slide. Here's alpha-D glucopyranose. This is, since it's alpha, the hydroxyl on carbon one is pointing down. And for beta, the hydroxyl group on carbon one is pointing up, right? This carbon that cyclizes, okay, it's got a special name. The one that makes it alpha or beta, we call that the anomeric carbon. And that gets back to this slide I showed you here, right? Anomers, okay, are stereoisomers that differ in configuration at the anomeric carbon. And this is exactly what I've been talking about, okay? So alpha-D-glucopyranose, hydroxyl's pointing down. Beta-D-glucopyranose, hydroxyl's pointing up. So alpha-D-glucopyranose and beta-D-glucopyranose are animers of one another. They differ in their orientation at the anomeric carbon. So there's no such thing as an animer for a sugar that's in the linear form, right? It has to cyclize. And when it cyclizes like this, you're gonna have an alpha configuration at the carbon that's cyclized. That makes it the alpha anomer. Or you're gonna have the beta configuration at the carbon that's cyclized. That makes it the beta anomer. And again, that carbon that cyclizes, is, we call that the, the anomeric carbon. So this carbon one, this is where we made our hemiacetyl, right? Alpha or beta. Okay. <clears throat> we typically draw this as what we call a Hayworth projection there's a Y there, the C1 becomes chiral, and the OH can be above, in beta, or below the plane of the ring. Okay. Now, if you look back at ketoses, right, so fructose, which you've heard about, I think, is a ketose. It's not an aldose. right? Um, if I go back to our drawing of a ketose, right? On a ketose, this carbon that's gonna be performing that cyclization, right, right? This is carbon one. This is gonna become the anomeric carbon when, so glyceraldehyde can't cyclize, it's too small. But let's say, okay, let's go to ribose, okay? So here's carbon one on ribose, and it's gonna cyclize, right? In aldoses, it's carbon-1 that cyclizes. It's carbon-1 that will be the anomeric carbon. But on ketoses, it's not carbon-1 that cyclizes, right? Carbon-1 doesn't have the carbonyl on it. It's carbon-2 that has the carbonyl on it, okay? So when we go back to this slide here, when we're looking at alpha-D fructofuranose, alpha-D fruct-, beta-D fructofuranose, okay? This is a six-carbon sugar Right? But because that anomeric carbon isn't carbon-1, when a six-carbon sugar cyclizes, it can only make a purinose. It can not make a purinose, a ring. Right? The anomeric carbon in ketosis is always carbon-2. Right? So just to go back and cover that again, it's the carbon with the, with the carbonyl on it that's going to be doing the reaction that we talked about, this... So we have the aldehyde group, this carbonyl, reacting with an alcohol group to make a hemiacetyl in aldoses. And we have a ketone group reacting with an alcohol to make a hemiketole in ketoses, right? So you gotta look, okay, when we're talking about cyclization of a ketose, like fructose, what's the carbon that's got the carbonyl on it? Well, it's always carbon two. It's the one that's one in from the end of the chain. Whereas it's always carbon one in an aldose. So even though fructose is a six-membered, is a six-carbon sugar, because the group that has the carbonyl on it is carbon two, it's gonna form a furan ring. And so then you get carbon one pointing out of the ring, kind of similar to how you see carbon six pointing out of the ring. Uh, aldose like glucose Okay. <laughs> I think I I got everything so far correct but I reserve the right to correct myself later you guys are all just going midterm 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 right <laughs> you're all just nodding and going yeah I'll get to this after the midterm
0: question
1: yeah Is an anomer a subset of a diastereomer? See, these are the questions that get me that get me confused. Um, I think for the, I'm, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna risk telling you something wrong. Okay, I mean a diastereomer by definition has the same. It's not a mirror image. Okay, it's an enantiomer. It's a ster- sorry, it's a stereoisomer that's not a mirror image. For the purpose of simplicity, we're gonna restrict that to basically the linear forms of them, right? Because there's this old, they have their own, nomencl- when they cyclize, they've got their own nomenclature. They, we talked about animers for cyclized ones, and I don't wanna necessarily get confused about that. So I'm talking about a diastereomer, I'm gonna be talking about something that hasn't cyclized yet. And we'll reserve the cyclized terms, like animers, for the, for the cyclized ones. Stereoisomers can be mirror images of one another, but they're not necessarily mirror images of one another. I haven't used the term isomer. (laughs) So enantiomers and diastereomers form stereoisomers. I don't want to... Yeah... I don't know if I want to parse that right now. I mean, an isomer presumably has the same chemical formula as something else, and thus, you can have, I think, isomers that have the same chemical formula, but are not necessarily stereoisomers, meaning they don't have the same groups around every carbon and all they differ in is their chirality. You know what I mean? You see what I'm saying? Like a 16 chain fatty acid with a, that's saturated at carbon two will have the same chemical formula as a 16 carbon fatty acid chain with a double bond, saturated bond at carbon 10 or carbon six. Those are not necessarily even stereoisomers of one another. They're not, but they may be isomers of one another because they have the same chemical formula. Do you know what I mean? So I'm not going to worry about parsing that so much right now. Yeah. How do the, so the question is, how do the furan groups deal with the steric hindrance? I mean, five carbon rings are stable. Like, fructose likes to be like this. It's not... Th- things are not in the way. Things are not in the way. But for glucose that can form a five or a six, it would just rather form the six. Do you follow? So when you look at the steady state abundance of the furan form and the purin form of glucose, it's more in the pyran form. Not because it can't form the five-membered ring form, but because the six-membered ring form is even better. And the six-membered ring form is not available to fructose because it's a ketose. So we'll we'll t- we'll talk a bit about that on the next slide.
0: Yeah.
1: So for ketoses, the question is: um, so this anomeric carbon, carbon two, which had the ketone group on it. I mean, I guess that's kind of one way of looking at it, right? It can basically attack. Uh, here one way or the other, and that's gonna make it alpha or beta. Kind of similar to the way we drew it before. I don't know if it's best to think of it going one way or the other way, or whether or not it's just the orientation around that one carbon when it attacks. I don't know which way is the best way to think about it, but the same concept applies, right? That's what I was talking about for the aldoses. So this gets a little bit to the question I was asked just now. So this is the linear form of glucose and it's showing you their abundance at steady state. There's actually a vanishingly small amount of glucose in the linear form, 0.02%. Okay? Because it doesn't, it's not stable like this. It would much rather cyclize. Can I make my point and then I'll come to you? The furan form is stable, but it has an easier time, or it's happier, making the purine form. And the purine form is available to glucose. So the abundance of the purinose form is much more abundant than the abundance of the furinose form at, at equilibrium. You do get some amount of these. And they can go... All these forms can interchange with one another. To do that, they have to transiently form the linear form. That's why you do have some of the linear form at all times. This will break down because it's not particularly stable and form the linear form, and then it's more likely to go this way than it is to go back this way. Right. With respect to the question I just got, the pyranose forms, the alpha and the beta. The beta is slightly more stable than the alpha, and that reflects the abundance of them at equilibrium. You're going to have slightly. You're going to have 62 at equilibrium. You're going to have 62% glucose in the pyran ring in the beta form, and only 38% of glucose in the pyran ring in the alpha form. So the Abundance of these at equilibrium gives you, as we're going to cover in the next section of the course, you know, the abundance of things, that, and we've alluded to it already, the abundance of things at equilibrium is related to the free energy, okay? the free energy of uh, the delta G. So you can imagine that the delta G for the pyranose form, the beta form, is the most negative, it's the most stable, closely followed by alpha, and then these guys are much less I think that's a, I, th- I think that's, this is not a negative, I think it's a squiggle. So it's an, it's saying around 0.02%.
0: Yeah.
1: Hydrogen bonding between these? So you're, you're, I'm not sure there is. Like here? These two? The up here? W- up here? Here. Next one. Here. <laughs> Carbons two and four? Here. I don't think there would be a hydrogen bond there. It could form a hydrogen bond, except that the distance is too far. So, so uh, hydrogen bonds have to be, obviously you have to have the right groups, right? And and you could have the right groups here, but they also have to be on the order of three angstroms. And if they're not within three angstroms, then they can't form, so. So just because of the, and so when you're talking about a protein you've got two amino acids that have polar groups yeah they could hydrogen bond certainly but you have to account for whether in the three-dimensional structure they're close enough to be able to do that how am i doing on time okay so we'll talk about um, some chemical reactions of monosaccharides right You can oxidize or reduce them. You can isomerize them. We talked a little bit about isomerization already. Um, You can esterify them, amino derivatives, glycosides. We'll we'll cover a few of these. You should understand kind of the general path of oxygen with respect to redox state. Uh, An alcohol group is more reduced than an aldehyde group. And an aldehyde, so these are all oxidation reactions. An alcohol group gets oxidized into an aldehyde group, and an aldehyde group will get oxidized into a carboxylic acid group, okay? And your general rule of thumb when you're talking about redox reactions is how many hydrogens are around your carbon? Because each hydrogen will come with an electron. So this carbon's got, so a, a, a more reduced form of this carbon would be a CH3, a methyl group. I would have three hydrogens around this carbon. An alcohol group has two hydrogens around this carbon and one oxygen, right? So this is more oxidized, right? When we convert this to an aldehyde group, we're making another bond to the oxygen, and we've lost one of our hydrogens, and thus the electron that comes with the hydrogen. So this is more oxidized than the alcohol group. And we convert an aldehyde group to a carboxylic acid group. Well, now this carbon's got no hydrogens attached to it it's got three bonds to oxygen so this is more oxidized so this carbon is now having to share its electrons with these oxygens which it's not happy about oxygen is greedy it doesn't come with its own electrons right hydrogens do okay so there are chemical reactions we can do that will in sugars that will oxidize or reduce the alcohol groups or aldehyde groups on them And so here's the oxidation. here's some a scheme for some of the oxidation of glucose all right, this is glucose right if we oxidize the aldehyde group that will yield what's called an aldonic acid so this is a carboxylic acid group now normally we have an aldehyde group on the end of glucose we can oxidize that into a carboxylic acid group that makes what's called an aldonic acid and the glucose form is gluconic acid okay. we can oxidize this hydroxyl group okay right also into a, a carboxylic acid group that makes a uronic acid. In the case of glucose, it's glu- glucuronic acid. And if you oxidize both ends of it, that makes an alderic acid. In the case of glucose, that's glucaric acid. So we've taken both the aldehyde group and the alcohol group, and we oxidized them into carboxylic acid groups. Okay. So this is an example of an oxidation of a sugar you can, you can do. We're going to spend a bit of time now talking about glycoside formation. That is the reaction of the anomeric hydroxyl, okay, with a hydroxyl of an of an adjacent sugar. You eliminate a water, and you create a O-glycosidic bond. This gets back to these reactions, right? So for an aldose. We cyclized our linear aldose that had an aldehyde with an alcohol on the same sugar to make a hemiacetal. So this is basically our new anomeric carbon, right? Now what we're gonna do is take that OH on the anomeric carbon and react it with an alcohol of an adjacent sugar, another sugar. And that's gonna make an acetyl group, okay? Which is here you make this new acetyl group. And this new bond between one sugar, which has a hemiacetyl group, the hemiacetyl group of one sugar reacts with the alcohol group of an adjacent sugar to make an acetyl group. Okay. And we've now made a disaccharide. Okay. We call this new bond between the sugars a glycosidic bond, specifically an O-glycosidic
0: bond. Okay.
1: And we're going to start talking about nomenclature now. We took alpha D glucose and we reacted it with alpha D alpha d glucose and we reacted it with beta D glucose all right and we made maltose and there's nomenclature just as there's nomenclature for the um, different isomers of sugars to make different sugars there's nomenclature for the way you make bonds between sugars to make disaccharides specifically if one takes alpha glucose so that means the hydroxyl is pointing below the plane of the ring okay if that anomeric carbon remember a glycosidic bond is always between a hemiacetal group the hemiacetyl group happens on the anomeric carbon right that was the hemi when we made when we cyclized our sugar we made a hemiacetyl, right it's next to this o right this is the hemiacetyl group so this is the anomeric carbon. So we always use at least one anomeric carbon. when We're making disaccharide, making a glycosidic bond. So here's the hemiacetyl group of alpha-D glucose. It's in the alpha configuration because the hydroxyl is pointing below the plane of the ring. Right? That means that we draw the bond pointing down. Right? Because the hydroxyl here was pointing down, we draw the bond pointing down. Okay? So we call that alpha-D glucopyranosyl, okay? glucose in the pyrin form. We could also just call this alpha D glucose. Probably people would write it that way. But be, to be specific, we spec- specify it's in the purine form. And it's making a 1, 4 linkage okay, to beta D glucose. Right? The 4 refers to which alcohol on glucose you made the linkage to. All right. You have to make a link between the hemiacetyl group, which by definition is the anomeric carbon, to a alcohol group on an adjacent sugar it doesn't have to be this one it could be this one we're going to talk about one where it's this one one of these alcohol groups on this sugar must be the alcohol group that's reacted with the anomeric carbon of the first sugar okay so because it's alpha D glucose that makes this ring this this bond and because it's a 1 4 linkage with D glucopyranose Okay. This is maltose. Okay. It, maltose, it has to be an alpha 1, four linkage. If it's not an alpha 1, four linkage, it's not maltose. Okay. So the orientation around this bond, this new bond we've made, and the identity of the sugars that are making the new linkage are very important to decide what your new sugar is. There's a lot of stuff on this slide, so we're going to go over it a few more times for some other sugars. It's exceedingly exciting, I know. But I didn't tell you this was my favorite lecture. (laughs) Oh, and bear in mind also, this is a a condensation reaction, right? So when we do this, we lose a water. When we make disaccharides, we lose a water molecule. So these are kind of our rules for identifying our disaccharides how do you know what disaccharide you made we just made maltose right rule one is what are the monosaccharides you're using right for maltose it's glucose and glucose you can't make maltose if you take glucose and fructose if you put glucose and fructose together you're not making maltose all right so the identity of the two sugars in the monosaccharide matter for which disaccharide you're making the carbons are involved in the that are involved in the linkage For example, if you're making sucrose, it's not carbon one to carbon four, so here it was carbon one to carbon four. For maltose, it's carbon one to carbon four. For sucrose, it's carbon one to carbon two of the adjacent sugar, which we'll talk about in a second. On the other hand, it's also one to four in lactose. So which carbons are making the linkage matters for which disaccharide you're making? Remember, on one of the sugars, it has to be the anomeric carbon. Okay. The order of the two different monosaccharides. The sugar that has a free animic, anomeric carbon, that is a free aldehyde group, when it's not cyclized, we call that the reducible end of the disaccharide. The other is called the non-reducing end. Okay. So what do I mean by that? we're going back to maltose okay this hemiacetal group all right when this becomes linearized as we talked about on the last few slides we can oxidize and reduce uh, sugars in the linear form this anomeric carbon is reducible right remember this this form is in equilibrium with the linear form and it's reducible right but when the glycosidic bond is formed, this is now locked. This ring no longer opens. It's locked in this configuration. So this end here, this anomeric carbon, can no longer open up. And since it can no longer open up, it can't be reduced. Okay? So this sugar is completely non-reducible. So when we're talking about this disaccharide, this is the non-reducing end this end still has a free anomeric carbon on it, right? This is carbon one of another glucose molecule. So this side of maltose can still, this is not making a glycosidic bond. This anomeric carbon is still free. So this side of the disaccharide can still open up. And since it can still open up and form the linear form, it can still be reduced. And so we call this the reducing end of the sugar, and this is the non-reducing end of the sugar you first, Sabrina. I'll get to that. Goodness, you're going ahead. Yeah. That's right. The reducible end of the disaccharide or polysaccharide is the one that has an anomeric carbon that is not participating in a glycosidic bond. This anomeric carbon is not making a glycosidic bond. Thus it is reducible. This anomeric carbon, carbon one, is making a glycosidic bond, so it cannot be reduced. This is now locked. Unless you break this glycosidic bond, remember also when we talked about glucose before, right? Alpha D-glucose is in equilibrium with beta D-glucose because alpha D-glucose can go into the linear form and then when it reforms a ring, it can by chance, happen to make the beta form. Once you make a glycosidic bond, it's locked in configuration. Alpha, This alpha glucose will forever be alpha glucose. It can't make beta glucose anymore, unless you break the glycosidic bond. So this is called, so we talked about this idea of the reducing end, and then the configuration of the anomeric carbon. Is it alpha or beta? So going back here, we just said this was maltose. We didn't say whether it was alpha maltose or beta maltose. What's going to decide whether it's alpha alpha maltose or beta maltose? Which way the OH is pointing up? This is still the free anomeric carbon, right? If it's pointing down, it's going to be uh, alpha maltose, and if it's pointing up, it's going to be beta maltose. It's not really been specified here. They're kind of cheating and drawing it kind of diagonally. they're just saying it's maltose so I'll cover that now again here for lactose okay so again if the ROH that you're making a glycosidic bond to is the hydroxyl of another monosaccharide you make a disaccharide this is lactose okay lactose is galactose the first one is galactose with a beta 1 4 linkage okay So this is the one carbon of galactose and the four carbon of glucose. It's a beta linkage, right? So the hydroxyl group of galactose was pointing above the plane of the ring. So instead of drawing it the way we did for maltose, which was down, we're drawing it up, right? Beta hydroxyls point above the plane of the ring. So this is the hydroxyl Pointing above the plane of the ring, making a acidic bond. So this is a beta, pointing up, one, four linkage. It has to be from, if you're talking about lactose, it has to be between galactose and glucose. Okay. And then the last question is, is it alpha or beta-lactose? Well, where's the free anomeric carbon? It's here right this one is free it has not made a glycosidic bond this is alpha lactose because the hydroxyl on that anomeric carbon that free anomeric carbon is pointing down this is beta lactose because that hydroxyl on that free anomeric carbon is pointing up okay if we're talking about which is the reducing end of lactose this is the reducing end it's got the free anomeric carbon this could open up from the linear form and you could reduce that end. on the other hand This is the non-reducing end of lactose, right? This anomeric carbon is not available for oxidation-reduction reactions because it is locked in place. It is locked by this covalent glycosidic bond to the adjacent sugar. That also locks the orientation of that anomeric carbon. It's now forever and ever beta unless you hydrolyze the glycosidic bond. If you hydrolyze that glycosidic bond well then this galactose is free now to form alpha or beta okay so these new glycosidic bonds don't equilibrate the alpha or the beta configuration at that side is locked in place so again this is the free anomeric carbon that's the reducing some other examples of disaccharides. So we talked about lactose, right? Beta galactose making a 1,4 linko- linkage, and if it's in the beta form with beta D glucopyranose. So we call that, there's like a shorthand form for lactose. It's a gal beta 1,4 linkage to glucose. And whether or not the glucose is in the alpha or the beta form will decide whether you're making beta lactose or. This gets to the question that was asked over here. Sucrose, sucrose is a funny one. Why is it funny? Well, number one, it's a reaction between an aldose and a ketose. So, uh, you've got glucose on this side and uh, fructose. Sorry, fructose on this side and glucose on this side. They've written it here: fructofuranosyl glucopyranoside. At least the way they've written it, it's backwards. This is the fructose, and this is the glucose. We talked about what's the anomeric carbon of aldoses? It's carbon one. What's the anomeric carbon of ketoses? It's carbon two. The hydroxyl group that was chosen to make the glycosidic bond when you're doing sucrose is the anomeric carbon of both sugars. So for sucrose, it's the anomeric carbon of glucose and the anomeric carbon of fructose, okay? That's why, you know, there's this kind of funny writing down here. You don't know which way to call it. It's either fructose with a 2,1 beta to alpha linkage on glucose, or glucose with an alpha, one beta, two, two beta linkage to fructose, right? remember it was the anomeric carbon for for lactose this anomeric carbon decided we were making a on on galactose right it's the one that has the anomeric carbon that's reacting so we have this galactose it's the anomeric beta form of carbon 1 beta 1 to 4 of glucose but for sucrose both carbons that are reacting on each sugar are it's the anomeric carbon right so it's hard to know which both ways to write it are correct. You can put the fructose first and say 2-beta-1-alpha, or you can write glucose first, alpha one, two beta two fructose Another thing that comes out of this is, what's the, where's the reducing end on sucrose? There is none. There is no reducing end on sucrose. Both anomeric carbons are locked. This anomeric carbon is locked, and this anomeric carbon is locked. So you can't reduce or oxidize sucrose. You would have to hydrolyze the glycosidic bond to be able to do that. Trellose, another example. Um, this is glucose alpha one to one alpha. So again, this is this another anomeric, anomeric interaction. You're going to have to speed up. (laughs) I can neither hear you nor understand you. (laughs) So you typically, when you're doing this shorthand, you you typically write, so for a disaccharide, the the sugar with the the anomeric carbon first. So in this case, sorry, the sugar with the anomeric carbon making the glycosidic bond, they both have anomeric carbons. The sugar that makes the glycosidic bond with its anomeric carbon, that's the one you write first. And you specify beta one, because remember when you make that glycosidic bond, the anomeric carbon is locked. It's locked in place. So lactose always has a beta-1,4 linkage, right? Because this one, you can't make alpha out of this one anymore. It's been locked into place. But you can still get isomerization at the anomeric carbon of the glucose. So the way this has been drawn, they're showing you the beta form of lactose because they've drawn the hydroxyl above the plane of the ring. They could also draw this with the hydroxyl below the plane of the ring, but that wouldn't be beta-lactose anymore. that would be alpha-lactose. When, when you're doing this shorthand, gal-beta-1,4 to glucose, whether it's alpha-lactose or beta-lactose, it's still lactose, right? So... The orientation around this anomeric carbon doesn't matter with respect to the identity of the sugar it's still lactose so lactose not specifying alpha or beta can be shorthanded this way gal beta-1 to alpha-4 glucose oh wow I don't have much time okay so uh, I may not finish today but we'll try to finish today the idea of polysaccharides. So just as you can make disaccharides, you could keep adding on here, right? So we made one glycosidic bond here to here, but we've got this free anomeric carbon here. There's nothing stopping us from adding another sugar here. A homopolysaccharide is one sugar over and over and over again: glucose, 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 glucose. A heteropolysaccharide has will have two or more types, right? An oligosaccharide we typically reserve that word for a polysaccharide that has not so many repeating units right so on the order of ten or less so if we're talking about an oligosaccharide that's a subset of polysaccharides that have short chains a peptidoglycan is a polysaccharide that's been linked to a protein okay so I'll talk a little bit about each of those polysaccharides we use them as storage forms of energy they can be a homopolysaccharide that looks like this only one type of sugar or a heteropolysaccharide they can be branched or unbranched. A bran- an, unbranched homo- an unbranched polysaccharide looks like this. It's always the same linkage. So this would be say 1,4, 1,4, 1,4, 1,4,
0: 1,4,
1: 1,4. A branched polysaccharide, you're gonna have the same 1,4, 1,4, 1,4, 1,4, 1,4, but occasionally you're gonna make a, a new linkage off of one of it. Remember, you can make a glycosidic bond between the anomeric carbon of a sugar And any alcohol of another sugar we're going to talk about some examples where these would be all 1 4 linkages but this is a 1 6 linkage some examples of some polysaccharides starch this is made up of two types of polymeric glucose amylose or amylopectin talk a little bit about that here's amylose okay it's an unbranched polysaccharide that's made up of alpha 1 4 glycosidic bonds so this is just, there's the non-reducing end, alpha 1,4, alpha 1,4, alpha one four, alpha 1,4, alpha 1,4, 4, until you get to the end of it, and then there's gonna be a reducing end. Okay? And we talked about how the reducing end will be in equilibrium with the open chain, and that's how, why you can reduce it. Right? This alpha 1,4 linkage in amylose, this linkage, this alpha 1,4, when you make a long chain of amylose, it has a natural tendency to wanna to form helices in terms of kind of a higher end structure amylopectin and glycogen on the other hand this is basically amylose but you've added some branches to them in addition to the alpha 1 4 O glycosidic bonds every once in a while you get this branch point which is basically what I was talking about here where you make an alpha 1 6 O glycosidic bond okay so here's the main chain they're all linked by alpha 1 4s but then this sugar here in addition to making a 1 4 bond to an adjacent one it makes a 1 6 bond and then this new chain also has the ability to make alpha 1 linkages to this new branch can also make alpha-1,4 linkages. So basically, you're adding branches onto this. Okay. One of the results of having done this is that you've now got two reducing ends. Okay. You've got a reducing end here, and you've got a reducing end here. You can only take off sugars one at a time. From the, so when you want to burn sugar, you can only take them off one at a time from the reducing end so by doing this you can burn this sugar more quickly than you can burn this one right you can take off sugar here at the same time as you take off a sugar here so you're gonna be able to burn the branched polysaccharide more quickly than the unbranched polysaccharide okay? so therefore amylopectin and glycogen are metabolized more quickly than amylose right? glycogen just looks the same as amylopectin except it's got more branches Cellulose is also a branch, polysac, sorry. Cellulose is also a polysaccharide, similar to starch, but instead of that alpha-glycosidic bond, it's got a beta-glycosidic bond. This creates a very rigid structure for this sugar, and, you know, cellulose, this is basically plant bone, right? They don't have the ability to make bones, but what they can do is make cellulose, which... Is very rigid, very hard to break down. As a result, you can make cell walls out of cellulose, wood, paper. These are all basically cellulose, right? It's this beta-1,4-linked glucose unit, as opposed to the alpha-1,4-linked glucose unit you have in starch. We do not have the ability to break down beta-1,4-linked glucoses in our stomach. So that's why we can't eat wood. We can eat starch, like a potato, but we can't eat grass. However, some uh, bacteria can break down beta-1-4. And that's why you have some bacteria that live in the stomachs of things like cows or bacteria that live in the stomachs of termites. They are able to break down these beta-1-4-linked glucose units. And as a result, those organisms can basically live on cellulose, whereas we cannot. So glycoproteins are proteins that have covalently bonded carbohydrate units attached to them, right? And there's a host of things that this is important for. It's very common for uh, proteins to have carbohydrate units attached to them, and often the cell uses those carbohydrate groups to basically recognize what protein it's interacting with. There's different types of linkages by which you can put uh, carbohydrate groups on proteins. We call them O-linked or N-linked uh, linkages. An O-linked linkage is a uh, linkage to a hydroxyl group okay, on a protein, and that's always to serine or threonine. Okay? So if you remember, the R group of serine is just methyl and then hydroxyl,
0: okay,
1: so OH. You can link a sugar to that, and we call that an O-linked sugar. Okay, We're linking a sugar to a protein. It doesn't have to be serine. It can also be threonine, because threonine's our group, also has a hydroxyl on it. The other amino acid that has a hydroxyl group on it, tyrosine, you don't really get glycoproteins made of tyrosine. It's always serine or threonine. But you can also link the anomeric carbon of a sugar to an n group instead of an O group and that's always asparagine not glutamine just asparagine right we, we call those n-linked like so a protein so a protein that's got a glucose uh, uh, sugar attached to it by a, a serine or threonine we call an O-linked like a protein and a protein that's got a sugar linked by an asparagine we call an N-linked like a protein because this covalent bond is to an N and you can get very I'm not gonna ask you to memorize this don't worry about this this can be very complex this is just showing you the breadth of sugar groups that can be added onto a protein it can get very complicated and when you're talking about certain proteins that get glycosylated uh, there it becomes very challenging actually to figure out exactly which types of sugars are attached I'll, I'll I'll finish with this slide. Um, I'll, I'll just do this one last slide, and then we'll and then we'll break. Okay. So I want to talk a little bit about this idea of lectins. Okay. Lectins are proteins that recognize and bind to the specific sugar arrangement you may have. Okay. So these are proteins that are looking for sugars on other things and bind them specifically. Okay. It's a general term we talk about other types of lectins on the next slide, which will be next class, but um, one lectin that's really important clinically is this lectin on the influenza virus, okay? So influenza virus has this coat protein called HA, right? It's on the surface of the virus, and it recognize, one of the ways that you get infected is that this HA protein that's on the surface of the influenza virus recognizes sugars on the cell surface of you, Right, you've got sugars on your cell surface proteins. Um, the specific one is this N-acetylneuraminic acid. Right, so you've got this sugar that's linked to the proteins on the cell surface of cells, and this protein recognizes that, and that's how it enters into the cell. It binds to that cell surface glycan, and that's how the virus is internalized into you. So now you're affected by influenza. Great. But that's a problem for the virus when the virus wants to escape the cell and infect new cells, right? You're gonna be making new viruses that are coming off of the surface of the cell that's infected, right? It's gonna the closest cell surface sugar it has to it when it buds off of the new of the cell that it's coming from is the same cell that it was just coming out of, the cell that's already been infected, right? You don't this, the virus doesn't want to reinfect the cell it just infected, right? So it needs a way to let go of the cell surface of the cell that the new virus is coming out of. So it's got this enzyme called, called sialidase. When the new enzyme emerges from the cell that it has infected, this sialidase enzyme cuts this neuraminic acid, such that now the virus doesn't stick to that cell anymore and it floats away and it can infect a new cell. Well, there are these drugs that we administer for influenza that look a lot like neuraminic acid and they bind to that sialidase and they block it. As a result, when the new viruses emerge from the cell, instead of binding to neuraminic acid and cleaving it and going off to infect a new cell, they bind this drug. And so the new viruses that emerge from infected cells can't let go of the new cells, can't let go of the infected cell, and now they can infect new cells. And so you end up fighting the infection much better in the context of these drugs. The problem is that it's pretty easy for the virus to mutate its sialidase, and then becomes resistant to the drugs. Okay, we'll pick that up again next class, and uh, finish the lecture next class. Five minutes ago. <laughs> That's funny. Stay away from me.
0: Sorry, let me.